Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The Streams of Winter. Livestream 20. Ariane Martel. Hello and welcome to The Streams of Winter. I'm Yoke Boy, and we are Radio Westeros. Thanks so much to all of you for tuning in to our live stream this afternoon. Today we'll be talking about a character who we know is going to be an important part of the Winds of Winter and is crucial to the Dornish storyline and soon Aegon's invasion. It's Ariane Martell, everyone. In A Feast for Crows, we follow Ariane through her tried and failed Queenmaker plot and her subsequent imprisonment before she is sent out to Aegon and Company as an envoy in the Winds of Winter. How did Ariane's background shape current events? And what will happen when she meets Aegon? And how will she fare in the upcoming novel? These are huge questions. And so to help me answer, here's the other half of Radio Estros, Lady Gwyn. Hello. Hi, everyone, and welcome. Thank you for being here today. Uh, we're digging into Ariane Martell, continuing our discussion about the Martells and Dorne and the Stormlands and everything that's happening down there. So uh, we are really, really excited to welcome today's guest. Uh, thank you to Ileana from Girls Gone Canyon Podcast for joining us today. Really happy to see you here. Yes, thank you so much for inviting me to join. I'm excited. I'm excited to be here today. And, you know, to, as you said, really dig in on the area in Martell. What role are her responsive nipples going to play and <laughs> how everything shapes out in in A Song of Ice and Fire? It's a huge part. You know, there's, there's two of them. Huge is the word, too, I think. Huge, huge. <laughs> Reactive, action-oriented. <laughs> Not where you thought the conversation was going, Yoke Boy. Exactly where I thought the conversation was going. So what Ariane Martell does best, <laughs> perhaps. Yes. Yes. Well, everyone listening, we are just warning you that we have some uh obviously we're gonna be looking at spoilers for the Winds of Winter. So that's our warning. And yeah, let's get started. Let's dig in and see what else we have to say about Ariane. Okay, I thought it's best to start at the beginning, isn't it? So why don't we look at some background? Ariane Martell is the eldest daughter of Prince Doran Martell of Dawn and Lady Malario of Norvos. Given Dawn's unique customs, this makes her the heiress to Dawn, which, given the events of Robert's Rebellion, is quite a weight to bear, I think. So what sort of upbringing did Ariane have? And what were the relationships like with her family? Why don't you set us off, Lady Gwyn? 
Well, as you say, being Dornish, Arianne would have grown up with this expectation of succeeding her father as ruler of Dorn. That is, until she was 14 and read that letter to Quentin and got the complete wrong end of the stick, right? Uh, assuming that her father, for some reason unknown to her, was uh, going to subvert hundreds of years of Dornish tradition and name her younger brother as his heir because of his sex, clearly devastated her. She tells Ares Okar, I cried myself to sleep that night and many nights thereafter. But in describing the scene... Prior to that, she says that she had just gone to give her father a goodnight kiss. So I think that in in a small sense there, you know, just that little reference paints quite a wholesome picture of um, family life for Doran's family in, in those early years. Certainly, even though Quentin was away at Ironwood, which this was a completely normal practice in Westeros, in spite of Malario's angst over the situation. So I'd suggest that Arianne's upbringing up until the age of 14 was really quite normal uh, from a Dornish standards and that her relationships with her family were very close, especially with her female cousins, the Sand Snakes, whom she spent many years playing at the water gardens with, with a diversity of other Dornish children. But then afterwards, you know, her mother leaves. Uh, Arianne is secretly estranged from her father. She's secretly jealous of her brother, Quentin. And she seems at some point to have developed a weird crush on her uncle. (laughs) So she was apparently a bit on the wild side in her teen years. And I will say that in spite of memories of drinking wine with Tyene at the age of 10, which might have indicated they were heading in that direction. I kind of think it's hard to know for sure if her wildness in her later teen years as she became a woman was attributable to her personality, to Dornish custom, to the influence of her uncle Oberyn and her cousins, or maybe to rebellious urges related to the decisions that she thought her father was making. I think probably all of the above, but Definitely, I think we'll talk about this more. I do think that rebellion played an outsized role in those behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. And along with that rebellion, and and as you said, in many ways, she had a what seems like a normal childhood, right? There's this interesting dynamic that Arian has with the rest of her family. She has a lot of isolation and estrangement. Uh, with them, especially since, you know, her youngest brother, even though they live, you know, within proximity of one another, is just, like, too young for her to relate to. And Arianne, while she may not feel that she was groomed to rule in the formal way that we see a lot of other characters do, right, in the way that maybe Ned would be like, you know, make sure that Rob is in the room, or the way that Sam points out to John, you're being groomed to rule uh, the, the Night's Watch. Arianne, like many of the other children in Dorn, had a childhood at the Water Gardens. And, and as we see from Doran later on, it's something that he kind of perceives as a rite of passage, especially when one gets old enough to leave the Water Gardens. And uh, as you leave, you're reminded that the gardens and the people who are there, they're Dorn, right? You are meant to protect the people across all of these classes. And now, coming back to her nuclear family, even though she struggles with them, Arianne has benefited from having many close relationships, close friendships, including with her cousins. Among the characters that we have like in A Song of Ice and Fire, especially amongst the noble women we see in this series, I think that Arianne is really remarkable 
because she's a POV character who has grown up with close female friendships. I think one of the other examples that we tend to point to is Marjorie Tyrell, right? She has some ladies around her, but we don't get her POV. We don't really get the POV of any of the Tyrells within that circle. And it's something that we talk about as really important, not only to development, not only to, to emotional well-being, but it's also really important politically amongst the alliances that people are going to form in, in order to gain power in Westeros. Thanks to both of you for some great points there. So why don't we further discussion in the Eris Okart chapter named The Soiled Knight. Eris is contemplating how Ariane continues to sort of seduce him. And he thinks, but I am weak, else I would not be here now. He could not tell her that. She was the sort of woman who despised weakness. He could sense that. She has more of her uncle in her than her father. So what exactly does Ares mean when he says that Ariane has more Oberyn than Doran in her? And do we think that this is a fair assessment? Lady Gwyn? Well, yeah, I mean, Ariane clearly spent a lot of time with her cousins, Sand Snakes, and with her uncle, Oberyn, especially after her discovery about Quentin. So even if a younger Ariane had been diligent about her future responsibilities, by the time she became a young adult, a woman grown by the standards of Westeros, she would have been struggling with her future and, and with her purpose and probably with this strong rebellious streak, as I was saying before. So from the outside, it's quite easy to attribute that rebellious nature to the influence of her uncle, who is a notorious rebel, in the same way that it's easy for the uninitiated to see Doran as weak. You know, and don't forget, Ares could hardly be said to know either Ariane or Doran well. Uh, but underneath, we see Ariane being quite calculating, collecting secrets, plotting, etc. These are all classic Doran Martell behaviors. And so if Ares doubted that Ariane was her father's daughter in uh, The Soiled Knight, maybe we can assume that uh, he was questioning that assessment by the events of the Queenmaker. Yeah, I, I really like what you're pointing out about, you know, there's this ambiguity around the rebellious nature and, and at first blush how it comes off because I kind of wonder to what extent, like, has Ares projected his idea of what he thinks that the Dornish typically are onto Arya? And we see that he has a, a very outsider's perspective that's based on a lot of the stereotypes that he grew up with on the Dornish. Um, and especially since we see that Doran appears to be a bit of a black sheep. I think that there's some truth to the statement that that Ares makes uh, internally that Oberyn despises what he perceives to be weakness. And as we see in Obara's own recollections of Oberyn claiming guardianship over her. Um, but there's also truth to an extent in Arianne, I guess, despising weakness in the people around her. But Oberyn isn't Arianne, right? He, he's very different. He's an adult that's confident in who he is and what he wants. Oberyn didn't strive for anyone's approval, whereas Arianne's rebellion is, in fact, her way of trying to get attention and approval or disapproval from her father, as opposed to Oberyn's, which is, I think, very purposeful, right? And as we dig into Arianne's chapters, we see more of this. And, and I have said this before, and I kind of completely forgot to introduce, you know, We've, we've talked about Ariane's chapters before on Girls Gone Canon, where we do a POV 
character by POV character read through and when we were doing Arien's. I love that Aries's chapter comes before Arien's because he kind of feels like an Arien chapter but as an outside and is our first glimpse of her where we kind of see Arien through the lens of this trope that George gets to subvert. The femme fatale, she's the seductress using her sexuality, her feminine wiles, her responsive nipples to lure men to their doom. And it's not really untrue, like, she kind of does lead Ares to his doom, but also I think that Ares didn't have to do what he did. I kind of think that Ares wanted to die, as we see in, in some of his POV and as Arian laments later. But as we dig into Arian's chapters, we begin to see that she's not this, like, super always confident, sexy woman. She's this really insecure young woman. She's unsure of who she is. She's unsure of what she wants and how to get it in a lot of ways. And along with sharing her father's really calculating nature and the secrets and the plotting, I think it's a similar sort of hesitancy and shaken confidence that we even see in Doran after everything that uh, he's been through. And we'll talk about that a little more later. Arianne, like her father, is adamant about not murdering children. The Dark Star's like, you know what would be interesting if we just killed Marcella? And she's like, uh, I, don't, I don't think that's very interesting at all. Um, and also, both she and Doran tend to withhold information a little in the middle of the Queenmaker plot. Ares is like, so are you going to tell me the whole plan? And she's like, no, not yet. And I'm like, oh, okay, interesting. As an aside, I do think that Arianne is dissimilar to both Oberyn and Doran in that when she's locked in the tower, I think both of them would have read those books and Arianne did not. But as Arianne's story does progress, I think that in some ways she becomes even more like her father. Throughout her currently published chapters, and even in some of Wynne's, we see her really reflecting on the plots that she's been in and how Ares and Marcella died uh, and suffered respectively for those plots. And I think we could compare that maybe with the pain and responsibility that Doran feels in regards to the loss of his family in the rebellion and, and more recently. Yeah, it's a great point. And um, also, Regarding the books, I just reread that chapter. And when it talked about the books and it listed the titles of them all, I was just dying to know what's in them, uh, which, you know, made me wonder or made me think about is this kind of repeated thing where you get young people having access to books, John, Danny, Asha Greyjoy, Arianne, and they just don't read them. I'm just like, oh, yeah, got all these books. What are they doing the whole time? What was she doing? Like, you can't, like, just masturbate the whole time. I'm sorry, this is so off-tone off, off for your <laughs> guests. But, like, or, like, when they're pooping, right? Like, what what are people doing least, if they're not right. reading the books? <laughs> God. Um, and she does it again at House Tall. And they're like, oh, Ariane, we have a lot of history books here about this. And she's like, oh, interesting. Maybe later. Not right now. Yeah. I don't know when 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 later is going to be for any of these kids but i have a feeling they're all going to wish they had read those books okay guys i want to talk about the queen makers such an important part of arian's story arian's father doran is portrayed as a subtle long game player in the game of thrones he organized a secret marriage pact overseen by oberyn in bravos that would have had viserys marrying Ariane. The grand plan was for Viserys and Ariane to be the eventual king and queen on the Iron Throne in a restoration of the dynasty smashed apart by Robert Baratheon, of course. 
But as we know, Doran's plan backfired when Ariane discovered that her father intended to make her younger brother Quentin the Prince of Dawn. She did not understand that this manoeuvre would only take place as she became Queen of the Seven Kingdoms, as Doran kept her blind to this wider plot. So how did this series of events form Ariane's character, and how did they lead us into the failed Queenmaker plot? Why don't you go for it, Lady Gwyn? Well, obviously, you know, the impact on her was huge. Uh, so this revelation came uh, right about, you know, in her as she was in her formative years. I mean, 14 years old, that's an age when girls are becoming women in Westeros. So she then spends the next 10 years or so thinking that her father has, you know, disinherited her and is just trying unsuccessfully to marry her off to the least appealing man he can find, which all fuels this resentment um, that she feels against her father and also indirectly, but very strongly against her younger brother, Quentin. And this leads directly to the Queenmaker plot, which, as we've said in the past, when we were talking about that more specifically, that plot has a lot less to do with Marcella Baratheon and her rights than it does with Ariane Martell and her rights. Yeah, and I, I think it's only right to imagine that children brought up surrounded by half-truths and so much secrecy are going to rebel against that or even mimic that behaviour. Ariane does both, and so Doran's scheming as a parent leaves a lot to be desired, I think. I think it's notable that at the heart of the problem is a simple miscommunication when Ariane reads the Quentin letter that affects her so much, which miscommunication is often a bedrock of tragedy in literature. And I think it's something that George really enjoys to play with. And I do agree that Ariane was sort of acting for herself by proxy with the Queenmaker plot, as Lady Gwyn was alluding to there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I love that you called out that it is just a very kind of small miscommunication. It feels like something out of a soap opera or maybe like a drama, you know, a hit award-winning HBO TV show drama, allegedly. <laughs> but so, so much, so much happens out of simple miscommunications. And it does for Arianne, right? Like, ultimately, it leaves her with this decade of just immense insecurity of quite a different kind from her girlhood where she didn't feel pretty enough. Um, and then it transforms into, well, shit, I'm just not good enough in her father's eyes and then leads to her distrusting both her father and her brother. And along with the rebellion and finding a way to secure her rights via Marcella's, as, as you were both discussing... I think there's kind of an aspect of Ariane having grown up thinking, well, if I can't trust the men in my family to secure my rights and well-being, I have to be the one to step up and do it. And I'm going to take a page from one of my good friends, Fat Walda from Reddit, Fat underscore Walda. I don't know if she has an underscore on Twitter, but definitely look her up. And some of the thoughts that she shared when she joined us long time ago now to discuss the Ariane chapters, but there's actually a lot that can be compared between Ariane and Cersei, 
and I would say even arguably Doran is a benevolent and loving Tywin, but I'm, I'm not going to dive too deep into that right now. But for Arianne and Cersei, one example is the way that they both grew up and, and the way that they both see sexuality as really important and perhaps even one of their main tools in order to secure power. Both of them are very exposed to the injustice of the rights that they're not denied as women in Westeros because they realize it doesn't have to be like this. And Cersei learns this by slipping into Jamie's identity and experiencing the difference in how she's treated when she's assumed to be a boy, assumed to be her brother. For Arianne, it's because she grew up in a society where she assumed, right? It, it, she maybe take it for granted and not that we should, it should be taken for granted. I don't think we should have to be grateful for having rights, right? Um, but it was assumed that her rights of inheritance were protected. Uh, and and I will say that Fat Walda has a lot more fleshed out thoughts on this. So, so go hit her up. Uh, but both Arianne and Cersei come at this in different, but also somewhat similar ways, right? Because Cersei believes that she should have power but she doesn't necessarily believe that all women are worthy of it or should be entitled to it. Just her. Just Cersei. And Arianne, I think it's a little difficult, right? It's complex um, because Dorne is absolutely not an, a gender egalitarian paradise. We'll see that in some of these sentiments that are expressed from her own party in, in the Winds of Winter chapters as they're going to the Stormlands. But the... But her situation is more complex. She's argue, she argues that she's defending Marcella's rights in a way that seems as though maybe this should extend to all women in Westeros. But as you both pointed out, it's actually projecting and more than a little self-serving as she's like, well, I'm going to make Marcella queen, then Marcella's going to make me princess. It's going to be awesome. And it will be interesting to see how the arguments that she's made to herself to justify all this fall all part as they already are falling apart when Marcella comes to harm and then later on when Arian decides that you know what if instead of a queenmaker plot where I play Kristen Cole and make someone else queen what if what if I just like queen make myself great point Saliana yeah what if I queen make myself I like the way you put that <laughs> why not me why not Arian so I want to continue talking about the Queen Maker, such a huge plot point in A Feast for Crows and beyond. So let's focus on Doran a bit now. Do we think Doran was right in trying to protect young Ariane from his convoluted plottings and his schemes, given that she was so central to these plots? Or on the other end of the scale, is he culpable as being the root cause for this Queenmaker plot. What do you think, Lady Gwyn? Well, look, I mean, obviously everyone is responsible for their own behavior, uh, but to a large extent, I have to say that Dorian is absolutely culpable here. By the time of the main novels, Arianne is 24 years old. She's well past the age of maturity, especially for someone who is expected to grow into a prominent political role, whether it be... Princess of Dorne or Queen of the Seven Kingdoms, Doran's duty should have led him to prepare his daughter for her future. While you could make the case, for instance, that someone like Ned oversharing with his daughters in King's Landing, and granted they're much younger, but still, uh, you know, this you could make a case that this led to Sansa's inadvertent betrayal of her family with Cersei. 
because she had this kind of lack of understanding. So maybe you may, that's an example of why you shouldn't share. But on the other hand, in that case, I think it was uh, the lack of understanding. It wasn't really the, the, the act of sharing information between father and daughter. So you take someone much older than Sansa was in a game of Thrones by the time Arianne is 24 years old, Doran should absolutely have felt that he could and should take his daughter into his confidence, just like he did Quentin, his younger son. I mean, I know his excuse was that she would turn around and share with Tyene, for instance. And, you know, of course, hindsight is perfect for us here analyzing the situation. But my opinion, it's really hard to reconcile the clever and cunning Doran Martell with the man who really so grossly misread his own daughter's potential, especially when apparently there was so much riding on her future. Great points. And I, I think it's interesting to compare her to Aegon here, who was obviously brought up to be this perfect prince, which we talked about and analyzed last week. In a way, Duran has done the opposite and not prepared Ariane at all for her planned role in quite a major and elaborate scheme. I mean, how exactly did Duran think Ariane would fare as a ruler if that was the end game of the plan? You, you know, what did he think was going to happen when he got there? He can obviously play the Game of Thrones and perhaps he should have been schooling her and taking her into his confidence like LG said. Ariane is 24 and more than a pawn in a game. Littlefinger tells us that sometimes pawns do have minds of their own. So should we really be surprised by Ariane's actions when we when we take her point of view into consideration with, with the Queenmaker plot? What do you think, Eliana? Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not really surprised, but obviously, like, I've read the books, so it's hard to say that. <laughs> um, you know, you see everything about uh, how, how they are getting to the points and the decisions that they make, and and it all makes sense, right? And, and that's part of what makes A Song of Ice and Fire so strong. You know, my short answer for in terms of, like, culpability is, I mean, it's Ariane, of course, bears the most responsibility but Doran is the head of House Martell and, you know, as having admitted to Ariane that he knew of the plot but did nothing to stop it, uh, hoping that his daughter would be wise enough to not go through with this, must bear some responsibility by virtue of having been aware and having taken no action. But ultimately, I mean, yeah, it's, it's Ariane, but it's not, I know, I know that's not a very fun answer. I, I think it's really interesting Lady Gwen, you brought up the comparison between how Ned parented Sansa with Doran's withholding of information. And I find that really important for contextualizing what Doran did, because this was something we actually talked about a lot during our Ned episodes, and we revisited them during our ARIO ones. But Ned's character and his chapters are so deeply informed by the trauma that he's nursing still all these years, like after Robert's Rebellion. And you know, all of the men that he lost in this war, but also all of the losses in his family of his father, his brother, his sister, right? And as we see when Doran brings Arianne into his confidence, Doran's perceived lethargy is likely coming from a very similar place. 
He's lost his sister, he's lost his nephew and his niece in the rebellion. And I think there's a large extent to which he could be internalizing the blame for that. Whereas like, uh, I think a lot of the deaths that happened in Ned's family were out of his control. Doran was in a position where he could self-interrogate with questions such as like, should I have brought my sister and her children home? Should I have lent House Targaryen more aid during the war faster would, instead of withholding it when Ares mistreated my family? Would we have won then? Would my family still be alive? And, and now, after recent events, perhaps he's wondering, should I have gone to King's Landing instead of letting Oberyn go? If I had, would my brother still be alive? And the trauma that Ned endures makes him very reluctant, right, to send his children away as wards. On the other hand, I think Doran's responded to this by thinking more about what he has to do for his children and making sure that he has all of these plans, right, to, to secure them, how to get power, including sending his second child, his son, away at the cost of losing his wife, his marriage. And it's had a really complex impact on what he tells his children and what he doesn't. Part of him not telling Arianne is distrusting her, but I think there's a part of him that is in general uninclined to bring anyone into plans if they don't need to know, aren't already involved. It seems like Arya Hota isn't very privy to many of these plans, even though he's like kind of always around. And the motivations for this range from, I think, a desire to keep his children innocent as long as he can, while also distrusting them to, to hold these secrets because of a lot of the trauma that he's carried on from the rebellion. Great answers, guys. I love pulling the Starks into this, and I do think there's parallels there and lessons to be learned from the Stark story. Ned, Catelyn, and Sansa. So perhaps we can perhaps we can brush further upon those uh, avenues later on. And in the Queenmaker plot, Ariane with Eris Oakheart, Dark Star, Andre Dalt, Silver Santagar, and Garin conspired to Queen Princess Marcella. The plot ultimately goes. Badly awry when Sir Aris is beheaded by Eriohotar with his great long axe. Doran had somehow got wind of the scheme, and when Ariane is alone in the Princess in the Tower chapter, she contemplates who exactly the leak came from. Eriohotar had famously informed her that someone always tells, which is a great line and it resonates through so many of the plot points in, in the books, I think. So what do we think of this failed plot as a whole? And also, who do we think the telltale is? Feel free to chime in on either of those subjects. And what was the motive for giving Doran a timely heads up? Eliana, why don't you take us away? All right, well... <laughs> I think there are a lot of compelling theories, right? There's so many theories just like with the pink letter uh, as to who could it be, who told. Some of the ones are, you know, Spotted Silva, and I think this will, you've discussed this and we'll discuss it further. And and as Chloe, who is my co-host on Girls Gone Canon, she's actually written extensively um, actually about this subject. I think a lot of these, again, theories are compelling. Both of these also are. Uh, obviously, I am going to be biased towards anything that Chloe says because I think you both know what it's like to be in a marriage and to be supporting of your partner. So Chloe says Tyene. Yes, Chloe says Tyene. 
for reasons of like Tyene would have probably been privy to Oberyn's plans and it might have slipped and not that it was necessarily intentional or some something like that but I, I don't know if Chloe you your um thoughts have evolved since then I know she's in the chat but it, it's something that we also touched on a little bit during uh, uh Chloe and my coverage of Arian but I am going to redirect us because I mean, I think that who the telltale is will one day be important, but again, like with the pink letter, it's not one of the mysteries that intrigues me the most personally. And when it comes to Arian's character at this juncture in the story, and as we move forward, to me, it kind of like doesn't even matter because knowing that there's a telltale already is acting as a catalyst for Arian's character and how she's developing because, you know, Arian's wondering who told, right? And as she does, she's going to start to distrust the people around her. Knowing that there's a telltale has this really isolating effect on her. And, and we see that a lot of Arian's story has already been kind of isolation from her family. And it could cause her to once more push the people around her away as she begins to suspect everyone around her. And it evolves into the sphere that I think is served well by analyzing it alongside some of the other women characters in A Song of Ice and Fire, right? I think the strongest comparison for how the telltale functions narratively in catalyzing this character change in Arianne would be perhaps the prophecy from the House of the Undying to Daenerys about the three treasons. Again, both characters end up fixating on the sphere of who is it that they cannot trust, and it's going to nod them and, and their relationships. It's, I think, an interesting phenomenon, really, that we can see across many of the other women and girl characters in A Song of Ice and Fire who are in precarious positions, uh, including positions of power or ex attempting to exert it. Besides Daenerys, we've seen how this sort of, of fear manifests in, again, Cersei, who believes that the Tyrells and Tyrion are trying to depose her. Uh, with Joffrey's death, of course, acting as a huge catalyst in that, right? She begins to suspect people of conspiring with the Tyrells or with Tyrion. But coming back to Arianne, as the story evolves, how does this fear drive Arianne's character development, right? Like what actions do we think she'll be feel forced to take out of self-preservation or distrust? Who is she going to push away? How will those characters react? The Arianne that we see now is, is swaying between blaming herself for Arya's death and Marcella's injury and also blaming someone else. So where is all of that going to fall? And I think that these are just the kinds of questions that I, I, I'm really interested in exploring uh, more so than who told. Mm -hmm. I think you make really great points there. Uh, for my part, I will say just briefly, because we've actually talked about this quite a bit over the past few months as we've been talking about Dorne and, and the Martells, I think it was Spotted Silver that told, but the narrative purpose that you highlighted uh, being that Arianne is dealing with this kind of betrayal uh, and the toxic distrust that might come along with that is a really great direction to go in. I mean, consider, and if, if you bear with me and think that it was Silva, or at least that she might be thinking that it was Silva, uh, and, you know, remember that Silva Santagar is highly uh, now you know, married to an Estermont is highly likely to be at Storm's End when Arianne arrives there because all the uh, noble uh, prisoners from Greenstone have been ordered to be brought along to wherever Aegon and John Connington are. You know, we can ask, how is Arianne going to 
greet her? Will it be with friendship? Uh, is she going to arrive at the same conclusion that I have? In which case, how damaging could her mistrust be? You know, what opportunities might be lost? What tragic misunderstandings might ensue in consequence? This is a type of narrative tension that really feels very satisfying. And as you said, we've seen George use it in the past with other female characters. And it's actually, I think, on his part, quite a keen observation of how self-limiting this type of fear or paranoia can be and applying it specifically, if not exclusively, to uh, women feels very real in context uh, of the patriarchal society of Westeros. Excellent points from both of you. I love that we sort of changed tag instead of talking about who it was, we're talking about the effects on Ariane. That's great for this analysis, I think. So thank you, Eliana, for taking us down that route. Great points. And so after weeks of imprisonment, just when we're wondering what Ariane's great punishment from Doran will be following the Queenmaker failings, her father brings her forth and finally brings her into his confidence. He tells her about the plan to betroth her and assures her his political feints and inaction were always a front to his secret schemes, all working towards his goal of fire and blood and the alliances we talked about earlier. So what do we think of Doran as both a player in the game and as a parent at this juncture when he's finally telling Ariane? his goals and his plans. What, what do you think, Lady Gwyn? I did allude to this already, but, you know, gosh, it does appear that Doran has messed up both as a parent and in terms of, you know, what he's planning. I mean, it seems pretty clear that his failure to inform Arianne really led to her Queenmaker plot. So that's one king's guard and one princess's ear sacrificed to Doran's need for secrecy, which incidentally, stemmed ultimately from his mistrust of his daughter that was born from his own, guess what? Need for secrecy. So the way I see it in the simplest of terms, Ariane read the letter, was wounded by its contents, became angry and rebellious. And as a consequence, Doran misjudged the situation and considered her unworthy of his confidence because she might tell Tyene. So this is kind of a vicious cycle of secrecy that's going on here, all of which could have been avoided if he had simply placed the same, not even greater, but just the same amount of trust in his daughter that he did in his younger son. And we shouldn't forget that Ariane's anger isn't just about Doran taking away her birthright and, like I said earlier, trying to marry her off to the least appealing men he could think of. But also, it's about him sharing the, those details with her younger brother while keeping her in the dark, which led, led to Quentin really bearing a lot of the brunt of her resentment, albeit, you know, in absentia. Um, so am I suggesting that Doran is guilty of gender bias? Well, yeah, it sure seems that way. And I think that's almost certainly how Ariane reads it. The, the whole situation really amounts to an emotional betrayal of his daughter. And quite honestly, the frequency with which this theme of betrayal keeps coming up in Ariane's story, uh, I think really ought to make us take note. 
Yeah, I agree with you on a lot of your points there. And I think if Doran was worried about his own daughter being a liability as a grown woman, perhaps the error lies in his teachings and the way he shaped her as a parent. There might really be a contradiction in the portrayal of early family life perhaps being wholesome and at the same time Doran putting his daughter at the heart of a huge rebellion. If Doran wanted the wholesome life perhaps he should have ditched his plans for revenge and fire and blood. As soon as he's writing Ariane into a situation, situation that's so dangerous he dare not tell anyone he has a responsibility to bring her up accordingly. And at this juncture, I'd like to think about Marjorie Tyrell and how she's well equipped for the harsh realities of political life by comparison. Perhaps Dawn needed their own Queen of Thorns. What do you think, Eliana? Oh, that's interesting. You know, I'm going to preface everything that I'm going to say here, right, and, and come back to it every now and then. I have no parenting experience. It, so I, I do kind of wonder, um, first I'm going to throw it back, and I know that we didn't wait <laughs> for this, and, and ask both of you um, if you have any thoughts on, like, what does make sense, right, for a good time to start in, in terms of the stage of life or development to start preparing your child for, for some of those bigger things, the issues that are going on, like, in maybe one's family, when, when does that start happening? I would say, you know, culturally speaking, because you have to look at it in terms of their culture, it would, it would have to be around the time that she actually read the letter, you know, in, in the early teens, when, when it's expected that, uh, you know, a girl is becoming a young woman, she's marriageable, you know, it's about time that, you know, she starts to really look to her future. The, the the expectation is that childhood is is ending around that time when she was 14 when she read that letter and so i think for her that's that sort of lack probably left her at, at loose ends where you know who am i going to marry what am i going to do i don't really know yeah yeah cult culturally in the context of this world i i agree with that it makes sense to sort of be schooled politically in your early teens if you're especially if you're expected to become a you know a great leader one day if not sooner i mean on some level but, yeah. yeah or at least a leader great <laughs> who knows you know just just get in there first <laughs> just good luck <laughs> um try and hold it uh but yeah um I think I think that's a good perspective, and I think that really that really drives home what you were saying about why uh, it's so important that she was brought into these plans around the same time because Quentin's, as you said, younger but brought into it. And it, I do though like kind of want to draw some distinctions uh, if it's all right between what it means to be like a player of the Game of Thrones, a parent, and then throw in one more category of being a ruler here in in regards to Doran. Uh, I'm going to start with that last one that, that I just brought up because up until this point, I think that Doran has actually been a pretty decent ruler. No major catastrophes that weren't handled like in Doran, right? Since the, since the rebellion, as far as we know. And as Doran points out in Ario's dance chapter towards the end, until Oberyn's death, no one had actually died in the War of the Five Kings. And it seems that the region has actually been shielded from a lot of the other economic ramifications and, and the food insecurity that has been plaguing the rest of Westeros with, with the wars. And a large motivating factor for Doran in doing this, right, is the 
protection of the safety of the children, which I think is a really admirable desire and, and makes him, I think, a pretty decent ruler compared to how we see some of the other lords, like, just don't give a shit. But as for how Doran is as a player, and part of why I distinguish that from ruler, is I feel like the player is more about being in the Game of Thrones, right? And, and the political ambitions or goals, which for Doran, as he seems to state explicitly, is vengeance, justice, fire, and blood, one of the best lines in the series. And I think Doran has a lot of like really like in theory great ideas. He comes up with like also what are in theory maybe really solid plans, but in execution aren't the best and are maybe inflexible. They don't take into account um, you know, some people in the chat were pointing this out. Doran's plans don't really take into account what kind of person is involved in his plans, right? They're 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 soulless chess pieces and don't take into account, except for when it comes to his children, uh, one's attitude, one's nature, and and that hampers him in things because he has some good strategies. He's interested in things like Savas, which is kind of like chess, but also I. You know, as we've probably all watched The Queen's Gambit now during this pandemic, and there's a reason that chess players have timers. I assume we all know this now how, from having watched the show. And, like, if you want to play chess, you got to move, right? And in the time that he's waited to make a move, Tywin, Amory, and allegedly Gregor have all died. And... So to bring that all back to parenthood, again, I'm not a parent. I'm like, not even, I can't keep anything alive. I can't keep plants alive. I can't do that either. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yo, boy, can you keep plants alive? Who can? Who, who can? Who out there can? <laughs> we have kids that are alive, but not plants so much. <laughs> I mean, I think children are harder, but thankfully at a certain point, theoretically, maybe they start feeding themselves. Who knows? Uh plants i'm like i don't know you seem good today and then it all goes around <laughs> but you know with doran there's a couple of other things right you've been doing a lot of contextualizing around him but i want to contextualize about him being a parent we discussed his trauma and how it might affect his parenting across the series but also i i want to call it that for like a good portion of his children's lives doran's also a single parent and for the past few years is a parent dealing with chronic pain. And I don't think that like that absolves him of anything that he's done, but it makes the burden, maybe parenthood isn't a burden, but you know, it makes everything that he's got to do like a tough task, right? He, he does a huge disservice to his daughter in not bringing her into the fold of his plans and then just judging her all of a sudden as just like not ready. And then, and rather than putting in the work, as you were all saying to coach her, to be ready but again I, I don't know how this sh shit works and it's i will say it's a bit unfair because turns out as we see i think arianne can hold a secret right like how many people in Dorne know that she's aware that she uh, thinks she's not supposed to be the princess of Dorne, right it's a secret that she's kept really close for 10 years nursing it quietly painfully and again alone and i i wonder to what extent Revealing she knew this plays a role in maybe Doran changing his perceptions of her. As you pointed out, I think that there could be some gender bias. Uh, I also think that Quentin was already, you know, part of him being brought into the plans um, is because he was already kind of unfolding them. I don't know if Doran felt the need to write to Quentin about these things, maybe because he felt guilty for having sent Quentin away and then thus the breaking apart of his family and needing him to understand why these are happening. Uh, 
when Arianne was not fostered, uh, which is because of Malaria's wishes. But ultimately, I think that the biggest disservice that Doran does to both of his children, Tristane seems fine. He seems like a perfectly happy child. Um, the disservice that he does is that I think that neither Quentin nor Arianne feel that they are enough for Doran or have lived up to his wishes, right? Quentin makes bad choices, thinking that he has to prove himself to his father. He can't come home empty-handed. And, and it's a lot heavier to him having not experienced his father's love in proximity. Arianne grew up in her father's presence, but it's this deep change of something that is, where it's this deep pain of something that is unchangeable in Westerosi society, her sex. And she wonders whether her birthright was taken from her when she was born or when Quentin was. But both of his children, despite those differences in how they grew up, desperately crave his approval and his love and are clearly unfulfilled. And it makes that heated confrontation that Arianne and Doran have, I think, in The Princess and the Tower really satisfying for the reader and for Arianne and Doran's relationship because it's this raw and hurtful moment. They're saying mean things. They're so cruel to one another. Um, and it's also the first time in basically a decade that they are being vulnerable to one another. Arianne's seen an opportunity to finally let go of all of the hurts that she's felt and put it in front of her father. And I think to Doran's credit, you know, despite his other failings as a parent, he reciprocates that vulnerability and explains to her and tries to make amends. And we see some of the fruit of that in how different their relationship is in dance, right? As father and daughter begin to try to heal, they try to support one another in these plans. And we see that Ariane has a new respect for her father. She defends him from her cousin's insults. Doran having opened up to his father, also maybe he himself is going through some changes, learning to open up to other people as well as making moves, right? We see him bringing in the sand snakes and, and opening up to him them about his plans. And ultimately, I feel like the development of their relationship comes through, especially in Arianne's first Winds chapter. She acknowledges that as she's parting from him, Doran stands up from his chair and she knows that it's incredibly painful for him. And she knows that he's doing it to convey to her that he believes in her. And she really just takes that to heart. She's determined not to fail him, just as Quentin was determined. But, you know, hopefully for Arianne, actually not at all like how Quentin was determined. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Okay, onwards. And now we're going to look forward to the winds of winter and incorporate information from Ariane's two available sample chapters. Duran receives a letter from John Connington claiming that Aegon Targaryen, the royal baby of Duran's sister Elia Martel, is duh, 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 
not dead after all, and in fact is alive and ready to take Westeros. Ariane is sent as an envoy to discover the truth and relay information back to Doran. It's a lot of trust to put in his daughter, who so recently went against his will. First of all, I want to know what do we make of Ariane's companions for the trip, who include Sir Damon Sand, Joss Hood, Garibald Shells, Nate, Jane Ladybright, and her cousin Elia Sand. Lady Gwyn, what what do you what do you think about this um, this gang that's headed up to Storm's End? Gang, it's just like another you know, it's another buddy adventure. We're going to see a lot of these in the Winds of Winter. You know, Ariane has history with Damon Sand. He's really her principal foil in this group. They they have a lot of these kind of one on one conversations. Uh, you know. Given given that their actions, uh, their these interactions have been tense on a couple of occasions, I really wonder how things are going to go for them at Storm's End, especially when she begins to cozy up to Aegon and Damon remains suspicious, as we can kind of tell he will. You know, the others all seem to be filler, except for Elia her cousin, who's there in part to highlight the similarities to. Rhaegar and Lyanna and Ilya, the triangle, which I'm sure is going to occur. We talked about this previously in our episode and in other live streams. And then you've got this kid, Nate, a.k.a. Feathers, who seems to be there mostly just to show how problematic Ilya can be. So, you know, uh, also, I don't know what else you can say. There's seven of them, which is meant to be a propitious number, but whether that means anything at all. Remains to be seen, and considering that she also had seven people with her on her Queenmaker plot, I tend to think that that sort of thing means nothing at all. <laughs> yeah, after a while, you got to be like, what if this is actually an unlucky number? Seven yeah. might not be lucky at all, guys. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, just get rid of one of them. Like, <laughs> if I had to pick one to get rid of, I would be like, get rid of, get rid of Nate. You know, I just Nate. can't get over. I mean, I guess he has like the alt name like feathers but i'm like everyone else has like a full-on name right like you got jane lady bright jane lady bright right joss hood <laughs> that that one's a cool name and then you got nate and i'm just like what doesn't How fit do it's like he just george just walked out into the streets of you know yeah. like his hometown and we're just was just like oh nate yeah that's a cool name he's like just not nathaniel he's not nathan he's just nate and uh, i i I can't get over that one. Um, but, you know, in, in regards to these characters, one of the things that I love about Elia Sand being on this trip is I feel like there's this sort of way that Ariane is now forced to, like, reckon with a rebellious teenage girl. And someone actually points that out to her. And it almost feels karmic, right? Like, now she has to be the responsible adult with Elia just trying to, like, thwart everything but not because she means to, but just because, you know, regular old teenage rebellion or exploration. And I, I agree with everything you said about Damon and Elia. And um, also what you were, the similarities you were saying about the Rhaegar and Lyanna and Elia dynamics. And I think what's interesting about, about these characters for the most part, maybe not like all of them, maybe not Nate, but like 
Her companions, especially David and Elliot, sort of reflect Arianne back to herself and they're laying the groundwork for her to solidify her character motivations uh, leading up to, I think, the several the series of decisions that Arianne's going to have to make about Aegon because that's going to be, I think, a huge fulcrum on which the whole plot turns. And I saw someone in the chat saying that it's going to be a love triangle and I, I would assert, you know, with all this many people, with Damon, with Elia, with Aegon, and technically when you get the other characters later on, which we'll talk about, I don't even know what shape that's going to be. I don't know if it's a triangle. Decahedron. <laughs> I don't even know if Actually, that's... Is that right? <laughs> that's, a, that's 10, right? At is that 10? Maybe. So Ariane has her little gang, and we learn about their journey in those two sample chapters. So it seems like there's a setup here. It's extremely likely, I think, that Ariane and Aegon will soon share pages together in the Winds of Winter. So why do we think George has put these two characters together? What will happen when they meet? And what possibilities and likelihoods are there for Ariane's future story? Eliana? Yeah, I mean, like, what, what do you... What do we all think, right? They're just like two really hot people being thrown together. Like what happens when hot people like who are maybe like interested in like other hot people like that are thrown together? Yeah, I wonder. We we went through this last time with uh, Brenda Beefish and he, yeah. he was making all sorts of metaphorical references to the, the bone way. And oh, <laughs> cue your bone way jokes, everyone. Oh. <laughs> Coming up the bone way. Coming okay. in up the bone way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, more seriously, last week I mentioned that Tyrion had somehow managed to poison the whole idea of Daenerys for Aegon, right? He just kind of like planted these little, you know, ah, you don't need her comments. You know, and the fact that Tyrion may have been unwittingly responsible for creating this future conflict for Daenerys, who we expect him to serve, um, that's an irony that we'll save for another day. But, of course, Arian thinks that Daenerys is for Quentin. You know, that's this is her father's great big plan, and it, it's... She thinks Quentin is still alive. It's really important to remember that if you look at the the timing of everything, most likely Quentin has just died when she reaches either Griffin's Roost or Storm's End, somewhere in that couple of days period of time. So, you know, the news of his death could take weeks or months to reach Westeros. So there's going to be a long period of time where she is still thinking that Oh, Quentin is over there in Slaver's Bay and he's trying to, you know, do this this thing where he marries Daenerys and her father's great big plan. So, look, all the setup is there for these two strong-willed young adults to kind of want to forge their own path, quite apart from what their respective handlers expect from them. And I can definitely see Arianne coming to the conclusion in her head that this is the correct thing for her to do in terms of her father's goals. I mean, she'll be like, yeah, bonus, he's hot, right? But 
you know, she's going to be like, yeah, oh, he wants to marry Daenerys, but my brother's supposed to marry Daenerys. Maybe I should just take him out of the game as competition. So whether or not she thinks through the implications of where that would lead, potentially setting up a conflict between herself and Quentin and their spouses is another question entirely. You know, I mean, and you could also ask yourself, would she be okay on some level, maybe deep down, maybe even subconsciously with this potential conflict with her brother who she's resented for so many years. And speaking of conflict, whether she thinks things through and proceeds quite purposefully and rationally or whether she acts quite impulsively, she's got Damon Sand with her who will almost assuredly be pointing out what her mistakes are, especially with regard to Quentin, because the setup is there for that. Uh, Damon has pushed her to be honest with herself about her feelings. When she told him that she wants Quentin to come home safe, of course she does. Damon pointedly replied, oh, so you say. (laughs) So he's uh, likely going to be uh, her voice of reason or maybe her conscience or her shoulder angel or whatever, you, you know, whatever you want to call it in that situation. And I think, in short, the narrative arcs of everyone involved are heading in this kind of one direction, and that's an alliance between Ariane and Aegon. Alliance is what we're calling it these days. <laughs> but, you know, I think there's going to be all kinds of conflict swirling around them uh, as a result. So, yeah. Great points. I do have cat problems. Nala is uh, insisting on sort of twisting all my cables and wires. Oh. She was banging on the door and then running away as soon as I got to the door three times. Heard her banging on the door. (gasps) Maybe three is a a lucky, you know, maybe it means it could be an omen. She can be warning you. It's an omen. (laughs) Okay, I, I, on to the subject. Bye, Nala. Sit down. Okay. (laughs) She's a cat. Do you cats listen when you tell them sit down? Yeah, I've trained Nala. No, really. She does the opposite of what I want usually. (laughs) I think there must be some great meaning in these two coming together and being physically put in the same place in order for dynamics to play out between them. Aegon has shown he wants to take the initiative and be bold in the name of his cause. And at one point he decides himself to lead the charge in battle. Ariane showed with a queenmaker plot that she's ready to take the bull by the horns politically. She's ready to take risks and use seduction as a tool to get the result that she wants. We might view all of this as a setup, as I mentioned, for perhaps a quick wedding between the pair. This might not be what everyone is expecting of them, but I think it's clear both are independent thinkers or are at least striving to be. And I think... If Ariane can be convinced of Aegon's authenticity while he and the Golden Company are, you know, making great moves in Westeros, inroads into the Stormlands and pulling in allies, she might believe that it's the perfect time and place to hitch the Dornish wagon to Aegon and his cause. She might really be convinced, you know, this is the, this is the right time, I've got to do it. I think on a story... Le- storytelling level, Dawn and Aegon need to ally with each other rather than Daenerys, who will soon have a formidable host of her own. And so, an Ariane Aegon marriage ticks quite a few literary boxes, I think. Do you agree, Eliana? Absolutely. I, I really think so. And 
you know, it, it makes it harder to figure out a little of what we think is going to happen for maybe the interiority of Arian and Aegon, but it's absolutely going to, I think, have a have a huge impact on Danny's story and, and the larger Westerosi political situation. You know, some of this makes me think of Varys's idea, right, of power residing where men believes it resides. And I think that there's an aspect also of desire here. Where do we want power to reside? And Varys plays on that a lot, right, with the way that he uses narrative and storytelling and crafting this narrative around Aegon as the perfect heir and you know, what other narratives are also being crafted about his identity and what aren't, and how do other characters like Arianne read those, and to what extent are people using these for their own purposes? We obviously get a peek of how Varys and Illyrio are. Could Arianne, who has now tasted, however briefly, the possibility of queenship, mull it over more to the point that she begins to read signs in Aegon that may or may not be there, and twist her own interpretations of events to fit her own desires? And I think that a lot of Arianne's story is about desire, not necessarily just sexually, right? But as we saw earlier, desire for approval from her father, right? She desires recognition. She's ambitious. In the princess in the tower, there's these like brilliant lines in Arianne's interiority as she's grieving over Ares that she didn't want him to die. And she thinks, I only wanted, I wanted, I wanted... And, and that thought never really finishes. And it's a sentiment that we see echoed again from a lot of the women in the series. Jamie recalls Cersei screaming, I want, during that like kerfuffle at, at the dairies regarding Nymeria and Joffrey and, and Arya. And, you know, Chloe also pointed out uh, when we were doing these that Catelyn in Clash has a moment where she thinks of all the things that she wants for her family. And it just ends with her yearning and it ends with her just thinking, I want, I want... And with women denied so much power over anything, like even their own lives in this series, it's almost as if wanting is just integral to womanhood in the Westeros. And as Arian heads towards Storm's End, she's confronting this realization that she does still want, right? She thinks that the idea of Quentin being a king actually seems like rather silly. And this is her assessment of why, you know, she's all like, as silly as Quentin riding a dragon, her brother was an earnest boy, well-behaved and dutiful, but dull and plain, so plain. The gods had given Arianne the beauty she had prayed for, but Quentin must have prayed for something else. His head was overlarge and sort of square, his hair the color of dried mud. His shoulders slumped as well, and he was too thick about the middle. And then Arianne has the connections, right? In Dorne, she's beloved, as we remember from the Queenmaker chapters, and, you know, she is beautiful. And if Aegon is a Blackfire, I think that the Blackfires have been playing mirror to people's desires since the moment they first started this rebellion. We recently revisited the Sworn Sword with Sir Joe Buckley, and we see that many of the Blackfire sympathizers were ambitious, hoping for more lands or maybe to be restored castles, right? Such as Eustace Osgrey. But ultimately, the reason that Eustace Osgrey Backs Damon is Darren was spindly and round of shoulder with a little belly that wobbled when he walked. Damon stood straight and proud and his stomach was flat and hard as an oaken shield. And he could fight with axe or lance or flail. He was as good as any knight I ever saw, but with the sword he was the warrior himself. And it sounds a lot to me like the rationale behind why Arianne doesn't see Quentin as king. Appearances. Vibes but not ability. It's, I think, really fascinating to me 
how upon hearing the story of Viserys' death, Arianne begins to project upon Daenerys, right? And almost relate to her own version of Danny's story where Danny is afraid of being irrelevant and, and murders her brother to take his throne. That's that's what she's decided Daenerys did. And Arian actively then begins to chase the throne, whereas Danny's circumstances are, I think, more complex. And the two women, of course, are very different, right? Uh, Daenerys is obviously much younger, but Arian's yearning for maturity and womanhood for all her life. Danny's yearning for girlhood and innocence. But nonetheless, it lays the groundwork for how Ariadne may project her desires onto Aegon until suddenly, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, in the right light, he resembles her idea of Rhaegar's son and what a king should be because she sees herself as what a queen should be. Excellent. And great to bring Daenerys into the fold as well. So we've brought a few parallels and contrasts along today with Ariane. And if Ariane eventually marries Aegon of her own volition, perhaps as a political move maneuver she herself initiates rather than Doran, what do we think her father will make of this situation, which might be expressly against his own wishes? Given that we know he's a man who likes to plot very carefully and usually with extreme caution. Okay, I'll set, set us off. Doran, as Eliana talked about earlier, is in immense physical pain. He's not able to treat with other leaders as he would like to. The death of his more mobile brother Oberyn exacerbated this problem, and now Doran has to put his faith in others, which he no doubt realises is more of a risky game than dealing with everything himself. If Ariane makes a huge manoeuvre without his consultation, I think he's going to feel quite helpless. But honestly, what would he expect? She has lived her life oblivious to the political machinations he was making around her, has not been trained as politically astute as she really should be, which is something we've talked about, and has just failed the queen maker plot against his wishes and you know now she's an envoy so what what does he really expect i think doran would be extremely nervous about dawn going all in with aegon especially when we consider the authenticity of the boy and the the doubts that are going to surround him whether he's real or not there's going to be doubts however he might also be sort of seduced by the invaders once they start to look like a real threat and I expect that if Ariane weds Aegon, he will have no choice but to be 100% committed. I imagine his heart will be conflicted. So classic George R.R. R. Martin in that sense. Lady Gwyn, what's your thoughts? Well, I want to get back to the fact that there's a very good chance that Torren does not know what's going on with Quentin when Ariane takes this decision. I think uh, we can be sure that whatever her perspective is, her father will not fail to see the potential danger of his two children being pitted against each other on opposite sides of a Targaryen power struggle. You know, he might achieve his goal of vengeance in the short term, but it could be at the cost of his family. Then later, obviously, when he learns about Quentin, 
that might change his outlook. The, the cost of his family has already been paid and he'll probably have a more uh, focused need of vengeance than ever, you know, when, especially if the news arrives, which we expect it will, that uh, Daenerys was responsible for Quentin's death, you know, it was her dragons that killed him. Obviously she's, uh, I think we can easily see how she will be held culpable in, you know, in this situation. So in the short term, I see a lot of angst for Dora and Martell. Uh, the fact that we'll eventually see this consummate plotter becoming enmeshed in a kind of tangled web of his own weaving is really pure literary gold. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, all of it, all it's why I feel so strongly that it, this has to happen. And as you both pointed out, part of it very much hinges on the timing of when they receive news about Quentin's death. Uh, I, I don't really know, you know, when we can expect that to happen, but whatever happens, whenever Doran learns that, Doran will find that maybe Aegon does seem, same as Arianne, right? A lot more like his dead sister's son, while Daenerys begins to maybe take shape in his mind as another... Aegon the Conqueror, there's obviously a lot of other parallels that that she has going for her uh, to both her advantage and perhaps disadvantage in Dorne, or even Ares, her father. And I'm sure there might also be some selective memory as he thinks more of Ares, right? Uh, and maybe thinks of Ares as the cause of Elia's death, not just the Lannisters. And, you know, as you, as you said earlier, Yoke Boy, this is prime area for the heart in conflict with itself. Uh, we are at this really sensitive point in Arian and Doran's relationship. And Doran's realizing that he needed to show her more attention and trust. He may feel forced to publicly support his daughter, but it also could Doran just start shaping his own reality to what he wants besides vengeance, which is to be aligned with his daughter's wishes as part of repairing that relationship. I think that it's this very human love that is part of what gets him into that tangled web. And if Ariane entered into a marriage with Aegon, it would initially have significant meaning to the Dornish backstory with Elia Martell. However, there are surely doubts as to the boy's authenticity in story and out how do we think Ariane would react down the line if she does hitch the dornish wagon to aegon as we've been talking about and at some point it's revealed in story that he's a fake or a black fire as we discussed so i i think the aegon authenticity question will be a huge one for Dawn in general. They have a deep-seated and personal reasons to be specifically pro-Targaryen and pro-Aegon. But if they got wind that Aegon was in fact an imposter, it might put them in a really awful situation down the line. This is one of the reasons some fans wonders if we'll never really get an absolute Aegon the fake or Blackfire reveal. Let's imagine that it was revealed somehow. Ariane would feel tremendously duped if there was any reveal. And don't forget, he himself, Aegon, would probably feel duped and have some sort of identity crisis on his hands. 
Aegon being authentic, if the fandom consensus is correct, is seriously dangerous information that could potentially pull down the invaders' plans like a house of cards, and Ariane and Doran could be devastated. Would they want to continue alongside a fake Aegon if they were already in the middle of a war and committed? It's a really difficult question. Does the thirst for revenge supersede any other political considerations? I think this sort of rumination is the essence of the Dornish story. Lady Gwyn? Yeah, no, I think since Doran's main goal is vengeance, uh, bringing fire and blood to those responsible for the deaths of Elia and her children, I don't think Aegon's true identity will matter deeply to how Dorne will act, especially if Quentin's fate eventually becomes known and an alliance with Danny is really off the table. However, I do think that you're correct that the uh, personal implications are huge. If Doran had become invested in the idea that Aegon was family, you know, this could be potentially personally quite devastating to him. But at the end of the day, vengeance on House Lannister can be achieved in various ways and Hagon really needn't be Ilya's son to bring that about. Uh, as Halden Halfmaster points out, sometimes a few elephants are worth as much as a theoretical dragon. So, uh, and we should also remember that Aegon, whoever he is, actually thinks that he is Rhaegar's and Ilya's son. Um, and so his his actions, his drive for vengeance are going to be just as strong as, as um, those of the Martells. So... As for Ariane personally, I mean, I can see her feeling betrayed. There's that word, that theme again, uh, by the deception, assuming that she's completely bought into it. So we'll have to see how that plays out for her on a personal level. I think that's that's interesting, especially with Aegon, of course, believing himself as Rhaegar and Elia's son because... I mean, there's this whole thing in the story going on about belief and faith. We're seeing it a lot within the religious subplots that are going on. But there's also, I think, a lot of what what is faith really even on this like personal level, right? And how does it change the world in reality? Because I kind of feel like even if it's revealed that Aegon is a Blackfire or if it's spread in universe, I, I don't know how publicly uh, we're talking here, but I think Arianne may willfully refuse to believe it. She's, as you've said, hitched this wagon. And to mix metaphors here, she has to play the card that she drew, that she intentionally drew and that she played. And I think it comes back to this line in our very first chapter in Dorne from Arya Hota, where he thinks, silence is a prince's friend. The captain had heard him tell his daughter once. Words are like arrows, Arianne. Once loosed, you cannot call them back. And we see that unfold in the Queenmaker plot, right? Through the plans and actions that happen. But in, in, in Winds, as Arian is asked to send back Dragon or War, which I believe you've already discussed in previous episodes, to signal whether to go to war and back Aegon or to hold, the story begins to conflate the idea of words with actions as one and the same. Words with arrows, words with literal war. And... We get this line from those Winds chapters. One word from Arianne and those armies would march. So long as that word was dragon. If instead the word she sent was war, 
Lord Ironwood and Lord Fowler and their armies would remain in place. The Prince of Dorne was nothing if not subtle. Here, war meant wait. So once she said a war, once she said a word, dragon or war, she can't call it back, right? They have to move forward. And I think that she and the rest of Dorne might have to just double down. And and there's, I think, a moral here, maybe about it being too late and, and sunk cost fallacies, things like that. Okay, guys. So I want to round things up and ask you both just one last speculative question. Ultimately, what do we think Ariane's mark on the story will be in The Winds of Winter and beyond? Eliana, what's your thoughts? So there's a sentiment in Ario's chapters that comes up regarding Doran's philosophy that recurs in Arian's Second Winds chapter, chapter, and it's, it is an easy thing for a prince to call the spears, but in the end, the children pay the price. For their sake, the wise prince will wage no war without good cause, nor any war he cannot hope to win. And then that George is hitting that theme again and again, and I feel like you only do that if you mean for it to pan out or to flop, makes it like, really feel like it, it's gonna flop and is meant as a caution. We're reminded in Arianne's wins chapters that Arianne keeps playing games that she loses in Savas, but I mean, real life's not a fucking board game, but Arianne's also striving to remember her father's counsel and Damon is warning her of the risks of going to Storm's End. And frankly, I, I think that Arianne's playing a very different game than Savas right now, uh, potentially to their detriment because Arianne's gambling. We see a lot of the other players in the series uh, gamble. I know that Jeff has a series comparing Varys and Littlefinger. I think I, I only really remember the Littlefinger one to poker players, but that's the game that it seems like Arianne's trying to play, and there's no assurance of winning in that. I think a lot of what we can expect from Arian's chapter comes from Quentin's chapters in The Dragon Tamer. Quentin thinks of himself and his companions. They may be Dornish, but I am Dorn. And in the end, Quentin and Dorn turn its, their backs on a dragon and they burn. Dorn and Arian's actions, I think, are leading them to also turn their back on a dragon. I don't really have much for this, and I know that a couple of folks disagree uh, in, in thoughts for these. I think that Arianne survives. At the very least, I think she uh, survives her father for a bit, because like many of the characters in A Song of Ice and Fire, including Quentin, daddy issues is like one of the biggest, like maybe top five, maybe top, maybe the dr biggest driving force in, in all of these stories, as well as that intergenerational trauma. Thankfully in Fire and Blood, George starts branching out a little bit. He starts exploring mommy issues also with Reyna and Alyssa Valerian. So maybe we can expect that in Wins uh, too and, and mix things up a little. But I think that there's something devastating that just as Arianne and her father have finally reconnected after 10 years, they lose one another and you know, for what, right? For the memory of family members long gone, as Ilaria says, like, I can't take that. I can't take vengeance with me to bed. It's not going to write me a song. Anyway, again, I have nothing to say why I think that Arianne survives other than I think that it could be a really strong character work in terms of her having to live with her choices and what she did. And it's a lesson that I think comes up in The Sworn Sword a little, right? But like, 
what happens to the survivors? How does a nation come together after having been torn apart? And the perspective of a rebel, in this case, when it comes to Daenerys, because technically, you know, the Blackfires are the rebels. Anyways, um, Arianne's very different from Eustace Osgrave, but I think it would be interesting to see her own version of, you know, visiting her ghosts in the Blackberry fields. Yeah, I agree with that. I I also think that Dorne's Dorne story will be one of tragedy, and especially for Doran Martell, and uh, Arianne being shadowed by this theme of betrayal really makes me wonder how we'll see it play out in her future arc. Um, I don't really have the answers, but I, I think that betrayal has been very strong so far with her as an idea, as a theme. So I think there's something we just need to keep our eyes on. At the moment, she really seems to be quite thoughtful in how she's utilizing her power and her responsibilities in those first two Winds of Winter chapters. But her seduction, both literal and metaphorical, uh, by Aegon, away from her father's long game, uh, and the news of her brother's death are really going to change everything. You know, Ileana mentioned how Doran's played his game for so long that several of the people that he held responsible for Ilya's death have died. So, you know, what is his goal really now? Is destroying Tywin's children really going to be enough for him? Will he refocus on the fact that it was... Like you mentioned, was it that, that Ares is the one who allowed Ilya and her children to die by holding them there? You know, while, you know, Ares' daughter seems to have killed his son. So how much of that refocus will be a result of Ariane speaking the word dragon, bringing Dorne into a war with someone who is likely to be in opposition to Daenerys, who may become the new focus of Doran's need for vengeance. Will this war be a war that Arianne is confident of winning? You know, will she be applying her father's cautionary philosophy about not, you know, not getting into a war that you can't win? Or are we going to see the destruction of the water gardens, uh, which would be a metaphor for the fall of Dorne and House Martell? I think however it plays out, uh, that Arianne is going to bear witness to all of this, in, including her father's death. I mean, not, not necessarily physically in person, because I don't know that she's going to be back at Sunspear anytime soon, but certainly as a point of view character whose thoughts and emotions we experience as she experiences, you know, news and, and things, you know, knowledge coming to her. I'd also like to believe that she'll survive because I have hopes and dreams for the future of Westeros that involve a lot of strong young women like the, you know, that we've seen that we have in the story so far. But honestly, I think it might be too soon to call, uh, but uh, that she is going to be a, a major point of view in the Winds of Winter. Uh, absolutely no doubt. And to many, you know, many very important uh, threads of the story. Lady Gwen, you mentioned tragedy. I also think that Ariane is part of a wider Dornish tragedy waiting to happen. I think she'll play a large role in the downfall of House Martell, ultimately. And I, I think that she'll be blamed. She's in danger of being remembered for her mistakes, starting with a Queenmaker, but per perhaps if she allies with Aegon, that's a one-way road that might lead to devastation. 
but I think we can go further back and perceive that Doran has made plenty of mistakes, both as a political player and crucially as a parent to Ariane. And then we can go back to the killing of Aegon and Elia and see things from Doran's perspective as well. It just goes on and on. Where does, you know, what's the heart of the tragedy? Where did it begin? I think George likes to make our heads spin like this. So perhaps we will see House Martell in a sympathetic light by the end. And there will, of course, be a clear message, I think, regarding the theme of revenge that George clearly enjoys toying with. But to begin with, in The Winds of Winter, I think we're going to see Aegon and Ariane in an ascendancy together. And that there's a lot more work to Ariane's character to, to be done and to the setup of this tragedy that still needs to happen for it to be really effective on a literary level. This upward tra trajectory will be the focus of Ariane's chapters in The Winds of Winter, I believe. Okay, guys, thanks to all of you for coming to our live stream. I really hope you've enjoyed this look at Ariane Martel. And I hope you've enjoyed the insights of our great guest, Eliana. Eliana, thanks so much for joining us. You're a co-host for Girls Gone Canon podcast. I'd like you to tell us about Girls Gone Canon and what you're up to and what your plans for the future are. Yes, uh, thank you for reminding me um, this time. Yes, everyone, I do have a podcast. Uh, I am one of the hosts of Girls Gone Canon, where, again, we do a point of view character by point of view character we read. Like, for example, we started off with Ned, moved on to Barristan, then Quentin, then Arianne, etc., etc. Currently, we are doing the Catelyn chapters, which, I mean, there's a lot there. They are they are dense. They are deep chapters. Um and so that that's where we are at the moment. We also, of course, have a Patreon. Um, and as I said, we just recently did the Sworn Sword. And you can find us at, what is it? Patreon.com slash Girls Gone Canon. Uh, we, are, we, we were joined by the good Sir Joe Buckley to discuss that. Uh, we also cover some other stuff as well. Like, I don't know if you've ever read the His Dark Materials series where we are doing a read through of that uh, as well as coverage of the ongoing current show but currently doing some of the prequel books of La Belle Sauvage and yeah we do some stuff about that but you know also you can find some of my other old thoughts every now and then very very sparsely sparingly theoretically I am also a host on uh, Maester Monthly more of Maester again annually by now <laughs> Maester not quite monthly. <laughs> yeah, one of my other co-hosts, um, Matt, seems to be in this chat. But, uh, up, Matt? <laughs> but yeah, so, but you can find me weekly. That one's that one's actually happening on time uh, at Girls Gone Canon. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you for being here. It was so really great to see you and to. Uh, do this with you. I'm really excited and that we got to do this. So as for us, what is next for us is we have another live stream coming up in two weeks time. We'll be talking about John Connington. So more kind of along the same theme. In uh, this one, we have our friend Matt from Davos Fingers will be joining us for this. So we're also excited about that. 
And uh, some of you in the chat may have noticed that we, Yoke Boy and I are both wearing our Vote Dick Crab t-shirts. This is in reference to the Davos Fingers, A Song of Madness tournament. T-shirts beautifully made by our friend San Rixian, and they were in support of a great cause. Yeah, so that's what we have coming up in two weeks. We also have got a new episode coming out on Monday. So um, check that out. We're moving on to the reach. So we've, you know, talking about the Stormlands now, but this latest episode brings us to the reach. So uh, an area that we haven't covered much (laughs) in our regular podcasts. So um, excited about that. Yeah, so definitely. Yeah, exciting stuff. I I did just want to say if you like this T-shirt or or want to get other A Song of Ice and Fire T-shirts, Look for at Sanrixian on Twitter and you can get a link to her store. And they're all, you know, great quality Song of Ice and Fire t-shirts. And guys, thanks for all your support of the live streams so far. There will be more and a special shout out to our chat room mods who make all this possible and keep everything above board. Thanks to each and every one of our patrons who continue to support us. And if you want to support us as a patron too, check out our campaign on Patreon, which includes all manner of incentives such as shout outs and early releases and a lot more besides. And I hope that all of you have a great weekend and thank you for tuning in. Okay. Hi to everyone in the future. Thanks for being here. Bye for now. Wow, the future. Is winds out there? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.